If you haven't already, friends, would you join me in the book of Jonah? If you need to look in your index in your Bible to find out where Jonah's at, that's okay. There are seven books in the Old Testament that follow Jonah. It is the fifth of the minor prophets. There are 12 of them. They're called minor not because their message is less important, but because they wrote less versus the major prophets that wrote more. Jonah is just four chapters. Jonah has only 48 verses, but Jonah has a lesson for us to know today. Matter of fact, it has many lessons for us to know today. So when I considered a sermon series that we might use to make a special invitation for folks that are not normal church attenders to come, and I'm thinking, I want to preach Old Testament, I want to preach one that hits us where we're at, I thought, Jonah. And so you can get your invitation card out in the uh, narthex or the hallways anywhere, give them to friends, give them to family members, invite them. If social media is your thing or electronics is your thing, we've got it on a news item on our website. You can send that to people or on our Facebook site or any of those sort of things to invite folks to join us for Jonah. Now, we know when Jonah was written because in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, the writer there of 2 Kings refers to Jonah. And he says that Jonah was a prophet during the time of King Jeroboam II of Israel. By this time, there were a divided kingdom. There was Israel, the northern kingdom, ten tribes, and Judah, the southern kingdom, two tribes. And so um, Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom. So it wasn't just this one incident that we have recorded, if I can call it an incident here in Scripture, but Jonah probably had a career as a prophet, a lifetime as a prophet. So hearing from God like he does today as we look back in Jonah chapter 1 is not something new to him. It's interesting that in biblical interpretation today, there are some folks that still think Jonah is allegorical, like it's made up to teach some other scripture, kind of like a parable or something like that. But if you look back from a historical theological perspective, the allegorical interpretation of Jonah only came about during the 19th century when theology was going a little more liberal. And rather than reading scripture for what it plainly was, people were saying, oh, I wonder if there's some symbolism in here we don't know about. They're out thinking themselves, right? But the interesting thing to note is that Jesus referred to Jonah as historical. Remember that? Jesus said in Matthew 12 and in Luke 11, he said that uh, the Son of Man will be in the tomb three days just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days. Jesus refers to Jonah as historical. Therefore, Jonah's historical. Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. And though we remember one key thing about Jonah, Jonah and the... Okay, let's try that again. Jonah and the the big fish, whale, whatever he was. Yeah, we'll talk about that. That's not the point of the story. The purpose of the book of Jonah really seems to be God's sovereignty over all nations. And the purpose of the book of Jonah was not maybe so much as to save the Ninevites, though there were hundreds of thousands of them, but to teach Jonah and the Israelites that he was sovereign over all those nations in every way, all the time. 
So God has a plan in Jonah and the fact that Jonah was written down and the fact that Jonah was put in what we call the canon of Scripture for us today. And it's so very relevant to us today. So if you haven't already opened your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1, I'm going to ask you to get there now. Because chapter 1 here is about Jonah being on the run. It's a message of rebellion. Chapter 2 next week will be about Jonah being in the belly of the whale. It's a message of grace, really. Chapter 3, two weeks from now, will be Jonah is in the city of Nineveh and he's preaching. And that's a message of obedience. He obeyed what God told him to do. And chapter 4, three weeks from now, is called In the Sun. It's a message of God's sovereignty. And we'll look at each of those. And since I said Jonah only has 48 verses and there's only four chapters, you know, you could read ahead. You could be prepared for your sermons next week, the following week, and the week after. But if you're able to stand with me now in the honor of reading God's Word, would you stand as we read Jonah chapter 1 in its entirety, verses 1 through 17. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. And he headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship bound for a port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed to Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the soldiers or the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots and find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Verse 8. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them. And they asked, What? Have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. Verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this the man greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Let's pray together. God, our Father, as we hear the story of Jonah this morning and we think through it, we trust that you'll speak to us step by step, moment by moment, 
and that we will hear what you want us to hear. Not just a story from biblical history, but something that applies to us even now. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. Your scripture memory verse of the month comes from next week's sermon in Jonah, Jonah chapter 2. And it's Jonah chapter 2, verse 2. Let's say it together. Jonah 2, 2. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Jonah 2.2. Jonah saying, God heard me when I called to him. Scripture reminds us again and again and again. And we'll talk about Jonah's prayer next week, but it may be that you come this morning and you have a prayer. Something that is on your mind, something that has you worried, concerned, or fearful. Something maybe that you're running away from, like Jonah was trying to run away from God. And that you need to call out on God as well. You can do that right now. You can call out to him in prayer, even as you listen to me, that God would speak to you and that you would be obedient to him. The first thing we see in our passage of scripture this morning, the first point on your outline is God's call and Jonah's run. God's call and Jonah's run. Very simply, in those first three verses, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, we don't know how God's word came to him. Uh, Was it in a dream? Was it a vision? Was it a spoken word that he heard? We don't know, and that is not important. But the word of the Lord came to him. Jonah was a prophet And he was the only prophet in the northern tribes written of between Elijah and Amos. And so there was this gulf where there was not anything that we have recorded in biblical history of who a prophet was, but Jonah was there. He probably wasn't the only prophet, but he's the one that's mentioned. There's a later rabbinic tradition, so it's not scripture, it's tradition of Jewish people, that Jonah was actually the dead boy of the widow of Zarephath that Elijah raised from the dead. Now, we don't have any biblical proof of that. It's uh, maybe even a myth or a fable. But one way or the other, we know Jonah was a real person, and he was the son of Amittai, and he was a prophet during King Jeroboam's reign. Now, notice what it says in verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Your Bible may translate that differently and frankly better than my Bible because there's actually two imperative words there at the beginning of verse 2. And the first one is arise. And the second one is go. God says, get up and go. So does that mean Jonah was sitting down when he was listening, lying down? I don't think so. I think it means get out the door, man. You got a job to do. Jonah, my word has come to you before. You have been my prophet for all these years, and now I've got a specific job for you to do. And a specific place, the great city of Nineveh. Does great mean it was impressive? Well, at one time, it was the capital of Nineveh. It wasn't at this time. It became the capital, or excuse me, the capital of Assyria, the nation of Assyria. It became again later. But in no matter what, it's where modern-day Mosul is in Iraq. And it was a great city in the fact that at the time of Jonah, it's estimated there were, there were two hundred to 300,000 people that lived in Assyria. This was an enormous city for that day and time. 
like a modern day city of multiple millions to us. Jonah had a specific job. Go preach against it. Why? Look at the last phrase of verse 2. Because its wickedness has come up before me. Elsewhere in the Bible, Isaiah chapter 10 and then repeatedly in Nahum chapter 3, we know of the wickedness of the Assyrians and Nineveh is the chief city of the Assyrians. Not only in the Bible, but in extra-biblical, so that means historical text outside the Bible, extra-biblical text, it is well attested the, how could I say this, uncommon cruelty and heinous brutality of the Assyrians. There was one king of the Assyrians that was known for tearing the lips and the hands off of those he conquered. Tiglath-Pileser III, the king that would follow Jonah's prophecy against this city, and it may have been decades that he followed, was known to flay people alive and to collect great piles of skulls to demonstrate his conquest. These people were wicked. These people were nasty. And it may have been that this was some of the reason for the reluctance we see of Jonah. Jonah's thinking, I don't want to go see those people. They're going to hear my voice. They're going to see who I am, and they're going to kill me too. Or it may be that he was thinking, I don't want to go see those people because I know that if I go preach God's grace to them, then they'll all get right with God and then God's going to use them as an instrument against my people Israel. One way or the other, Jonah has made up his mind that though God has called, he's going to run. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. Nineveh was 500 miles northeast overland from <clears throat> Jerusalem, or not Jerusalem, where Jonah was in Israel. We don't know exactly what town he was in. But Tarshish was 2,000 miles across the Mediterranean Sea in modern-day Spain. Jonah was buying a one-way ticket to get as far away from what God called him to do as he possibly could imagine. How many of us have sought to run away from God's will in our life? God clearly commands us. God clearly calls us. He tells us something to do. It's not a matter of what. It's not a matter of who. It's just a matter of when we're going to obey. Yet we run the other way. Just like Jonah. He knew that God in his goodness would do something to redeem, to save, to give grace to the people at Nineveh, and he wanted nothing to do with it. Your first question asks, how have I directly disobeyed God? How is it that you and your life have directly disobeyed God? It was a direct command to you. Scripture tells us direct commands of things we should do. Yet we say, oh, that's not for me. You know, that's in the Bible. The pastor hasn't preached on it. It must not count. Or maybe God says to you specifically, I want you to go talk to your neighbor. They need to get saved. And you go, "Uh -uh, I ain't going to do it. Maybe God says to you, I need you to forgive a family member. And you think, well, they did this to me, they did this to me, and then they'll keep doing it. There's no use in forgiving them, God. And we come up with all sorts of excuses, and we directly disobey God. Friends, when we directly disobey God, we're running into all sorts of problems. And it's not only our action, but also our 
inaction that can be disobedience. My wife talked to me about that a few months ago, and I write that down, and I thought about that. We can do nothing and disobey. And we do it our way. When we directly disobey God, it's sin. Jonah here is seeking to run as far away from God as possible. And he's in sin the moment he makes the decision. And each step he takes further away from the Lord is deeper into his sinful decision. So what happens to Jonah? Let's go to your next point. Your next point is God's storm and the sailor's fear. God's storm and the sailor's fear. Look at what happens in verse 4. Such a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Now, we don't know all the details. You know, we don't know what boat he took. How did he get on? What did he pay for? Was it all by himself? Was it on a cargo boat? Apparently so, by what happens. But one way or the other, we know he went down to the dock of Joppa, modern-day Jaffa, and he got on a boat, and he's sailing off, and we don't know how long they've been sailing But we do know that in those days and times, without bigger ships, without modern instruments, that there was a sailing season. What we would know is spring, summer, and into early fall. But then after that, because the weather changed and the Mediterranean Sea got so rough, nobody sailed. Commerce stopped. You had to be stocked up. And so this was in the middle of sailing season, we do know, because of the way the sailors respond that, hey, this sort of storm shouldn't happen in this time of the year. And they knew implicitly that something other than nature was at work that it was supernatural. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. It's an interesting phrase in Hebrew. You've heard me say before that Hebrew is not as expressive as Greek in many ways, but this phrase is pretty expressive. It's personifying the ship itself, and it's like the ship is saying, I'm going to break up. In other words, the ship is saying to Jonah, to the sailors, I can't hold together. I'm going to break up because I would rather break up than keep holding together in the midst of this storm. The ship says this. This is how bad the storm is. Look at verse 5. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Why are they doing that? To lighten the ship so it'll ride higher on the waves so the waves won't come over and into the ship and swamp the ship. They didn't have electrical engines and pumps and things to get water out of the ship. They were doing what they could with the technology they had at that day and time. The end of verse 5. But Jonah had gone down below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Okay, I don't know about you. If I'm in a pond, and I'm in like a little rowboat, and it's pleasant outside, I could imagine myself, you know, kind of settling down and taking a nap, just kind of gently going across the pond water with the sounds of the pond around me. But if I'm in a storm and people are freaking out and thinking they're going to die, I don't think I can sleep. Can you? No. What was wrong with this dude? Was he seasick? And the Bible didn't use that? Well, even in Hebrew, it would say he was sick and he was like, you know, pukey. And then you wouldn't be below deck. You'd be hanging over the edge, right? That's what you're supposed to do. Puke into the ocean, not downstairs. Was he like so depressed or so much in denial that he was like, oh, I can sleep soundly no matter what. I don't understand what's going on here. One way or the other, Jonah is a long way from normal right now. That's about all I can say. And he's asleep. In verse 6, the captain went into him and said, how can you sleep like all of us are doing? 
Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice on us and we will not perish. Now, let's take it aside here. These guys were Phoenicians, most likely, from Phoenicia. And they were right on the coast, and they were sailors. There might have been some sailors they'd gotten from some other ports along the way that said, that to help ship, I like this captain, I'm going to work with you. There's not any evidence that they got slaves or anything like that to help them, and it's conscripted people like pirates would do from the movies and the stories we read. So it was like a hired crew, right? But these Phoenicians were already guys that were polytheist. Their culture was that they believed there were many gods, and then, as sailors, the scripture tell, or extra biblical history tells us that many times sailors would adopt gods from other places because they learned about different cultures. And, you know, so they're on a boat with somebody from that place, and uh, they have a big storm that day, and the person from that place prays, and the storm stops, and they, oh, that God must be the best God for this place, or may it be the best God. So they're adopting all these different kinds of gods. That was their culture, right? So when the captain comes to him and says, I want you to pray to your God, the captain is is thinking, all of my guys are praying to all the gods they know, and it doesn't work. You're from that strange country, Israel. You're a Hebrew, because we can tell by the way you dress and talk. So you better pray to your God. Maybe that'll save us, right? How many people do you know that they try one thing after another, after another, after another to fix the problem, whatever the problem is? It's human nature, right? I'm going to try this way. I'm going to try this way. I'm going to try this way. I'm going to try that way. Are there any other ways? Google, how do I solve this problem? Human nature has not changed from the time that Jonah wrote his book almost 3,000 years ago to today. Google might have made it easier to try to find a solution. Our blessedness of our nation may have made it easier to find solutions because we can go down to the store and buy a medicine for that or go to the doctor and get treated for this. But problems are still problems and people are still searching for answers. The captain said, maybe he will take notice on us, referring to your God, Jonah's God, our God, and we will not perish. The question I've got to ask in reflection here is, how does my sin, or how has my sin affected others? Jonah was the one in sin here. And all these guys were unwitting participants in Jonah's sin. Everybody who paid to have cargo on that boat, their cargo's lost. Jonah's fault. Everybody who thought they were going to die on that boat, whose blood pressure went through the roof, who all their years of sailing experience came to the fore to try to save them, Jonah's fault. Everything that happened on that ship, Jonah's fault because of his sin. His sin only. No matter who you are, no matter how old you are, anytime you sin, it affects other people. You're not an island. You cause waves and ripples. Some of us, it's easier to affect than others. If you're a parent, your sin is going to affect your children. And now we can name some easy things and we say, oh yeah, if you're involved in alcohol or drugs, that's going to affect your family. Of course it is. It can have terrible consequences for what you do and how it affects your children, how it affects your spouse, how it affects further family members. But friends... Let's talk about the sins that we don't like to talk about because we're church members, right? What about control? What about fear? What about gluttony? And I'm not just talking about gluttony with food. I'm talking about gluttony with money and excessive spending. 
What about our pridefulness? What about how those things are hurting our family? What about our anger that we can keep it under wraps when we're at church, but it comes out when we're around our family? What about our laziness, our unforgiveness? Don't point your finger at somebody else and their sinfulness without asking God seriously to help you answer this question. How's my sin affected others? Are you Jonah in the boat? And you're putting all kinds of other people at risk because of your sin. You might be. You might be right now. Your third point on your outline are the sailors' questions and Jonah's guilt. The sailors' questions and Jonah's guilt. So the sailors, not finding any solution, maybe Jonah's not up on the deck yet, or maybe he is by this time, then they say to each other, let's cast lots to see who's responsible. Basically, you know, rolling some carved up bones or stones that would have colors on them of certain sides, and this was a way. Uh, You know, the Bible even says that man can cast a lot, but God can make it fall as he wants to, so that God can use something like gambling, if you will, to teach his will to people or show his will, and in this case, he did. They cast the lots, and it fell on Jonah. So they pepper him with questions in verse 8. You know, who's responsible? What do you do? Where are you from? What's your country? What people are you from? Because, you know, in different countries, there are different people. Mary Elizabeth, 200 million. But there are 100 different tribes in Nigeria, right? In America, we're a melting pot. We got people from all sorts of places all over, and most of us got a little bit of this and a little bit of that. We're Heinz 57, right? But in those days and time, they were asking, where you come? Where people? Verse 9 this is the first time Jonah speaks in the book. And he says, I'm a Hebrew. That's how the other people in other nations would know him. He didn't say, I'm an Israelite. And he didn't even answer where he's from because Israel, they would know a rough idea. But then notice what he says. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven. Okay. Everybody claimed their God was from heaven, you know, above. But then he adds this last part, who made the sea and the land. The chief deity of the Phoenicians and most of the people that surrounded the Israelites would be Baal. B-A-A-L. Baal. Baal, we say. And Baal was to be the god of the sky. And Baal controlled the sky. And you'd offer sacrifices to get rain or you'd offer sacrifices to stop bad storms because you were trying to persuade the god of the sky, Baal. So Jonah says to them, I worship the god who made the sea and the land. In other words, he's a God greater than Baal, guys. Verse 10, this terrified them. Your Bible probably records the next phrase as a question, what have you done? But actually, scholars believe it's best interpreted in Hebrew as, what have you done? Like an exclamation point. What in the world did you do to cause all this to happen? How could all this be your fault? Well, he had already told them he was running away from God. So they're wanting to know, what is he running away from and why? Your third question asks, how do I act when confronted with my sin? When you're confronted with sin, most of us go back to being like children, right? We either want to ignore the sin. What sin? I don't see any sin. You remember my story about my um, younger cousin? 
in my Aunt Fran and Uncle Tom's house that they had the formal living room back in the 70s, you know, with the nice furniture and the white carpet, and they even had the covers on the furniture, but you still weren't allowed to sit on it. But Aunt Fran had this big open bowl of candy. And all of us kids coveted after that candy, but we knew we weren't allowed to go in that room. Aunt Franny made it pretty clear to us we weren't supposed to go in there. But one time, my cousin came out with his cheeks bursting. And my aunt got right down in his face and said, Andrew Liller, what happened to that candy? And he said, I don't really think about the candy. Yeah. When you think people don't know your sin, they can see it. Your cheeks may not be bulging, but they can see, especially if they're asking about it. Other times we lie. We don't want to look like we've sinned. We don't want to be confronted with our sins, so we just flat out lie. One time I had a supervisor ask me, do you have a problem with my authority? Or no, excuse me. He said, do you have a problem with authority? And I said, no, which was a lie. Because I was thinking, I have a problem with your authority, yahoo. (laughs) I've since apologized and asked his forgiveness. But I flat out lied to him, right? He was confronting me with a sinful action I had done as his subordinate worker. But I lied. When we're confronted, we also excuse or deflect or say it's not our fault. You think about Adam and Eve. Adam's like, "Um, the woman you gave me made it do it. Eve is like, the snake you gave made me do it. And God's like, you did it. Friends, no matter our reaction to our sin, we've still sinned. And the best reaction is to be humble, to admit, to repent, and to seek God's grace and the grace of those we've sinned against if it's involving someone else. So let's look at the sailor's response here. The sailor's response and God's provision is your fourth main point in your outline. The sailor's response and God's provision. This just floors me about this story. What happens next? Verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Now, they're not asking this because they don't know. But in their polytheistic culture, the way to appease any god had to be followed in a certain legalistic way. And if you were going to do what the god wanted, well, you had to do it this way, this way, and this way. You could only offer sacrifices at a certain place, maybe only at a certain time, maybe only when you followed certain rituals. So they're like, okay, Jonah, it's your god. A lot of options here, Jonah. The lot fell on you. You're the man. But notice what they said. They said, what should we do to you. Verse 12, Jonah says, pick me up and throw me overboard. I in the ocean, that's better than Jonah saying, hand me over to God's judgment. And Jonah might be thinking, you know, if I die in the ocean, that's better than having to go preach to those filthy Ninevites. I mean, Jonah's motives may not be pure here, right? He's not thinking of saving them necessarily. He's thinking of the fact, the reason he ran in the first place. He doesn't want the Ninevites to trust in God. He doesn't want the Ninevites to know of God's grace. 
He knew God was sovereign. And he knew God gave grace to all. And he did not want it for the Ninevites. But he did want it for the sailors. He realized that it was him that was putting them in peril. And so he says, sacrifice me, throw me over. It's interesting to me, it's always been interesting, ever since I was a kid, I think, that here's Jonah, God's prophet, who speaks on behalf of God, delivers God's messages. This was his career, if you will. We don't know anything else about Jonah, so as far as we know, he was a prophet. That's what he did. Yet, in this roughest time of his life, perchance, that we have recorded in Scripture, he is powerless to throw himself in. He could have just jumped overboard. All right, y'all, I'm out. I think when I jump over, the waves are going to calm down. If not, I'm sorry. Don't know what else to do. Here I go. Woo! Jonah didn't do a cannonball over the side. He's powerless. And he says, you guys got to pitch me in. What a coward. He's running away from God, yet he's put all these guys in danger, yet he's not willing to just jump over and man up and take it himself. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he says, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault. Okay, a little admission of guilt there. that This storm has come upon you. Verse 13. Did you see that? Instead, the man did their best to row back to land. We don't know how far out to sea they were. What kind of foolhardy scheme this was. But they grab some oars and try to row. I mean, God bless these heathen Phoenician polytheistic sailor guys. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord. Notice that's the capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. That's the Lord God, our God. And they say, oh, Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you. Oh, Lord, have done as you please. Now, we're looking at it. We're going, how can they say he's innocent? What they mean is he's innocent, not um, been in a court of peers. So by their way of thinking, they would be guilty for killing him, even though he was the reason that they were about to all die. So that's why they say it that way. But one way or the other. They're praying to God, even though it is a plea, prayer. Some of us, the only time we pray is when we're in a jam like this, right? We cry out to God in a last-ditch effort because everything else we knew failed. We're not unlike the sailors. We're not unlike Jonah, are we? We've tried it our way. We called on every God we knew. We cast the lots. They fell on somebody else. We try to row and save him ourselves. And finally, we have to say, okay, God, everything I tried didn't work. Can you help me now, God? Verse 15, they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. They knew throwing Jonah overboard in that storm was a death sentence. Nobody could survive that. They didn't want to throw him over, but they did what he said when nothing else worked. What's the result of their throwing him overboard? Verse 16. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and offered a sacrifice. They had thrown pretty much everything they had into the ocean, right? So we don't know what they had to offer. But then notice what it says. And made vows to him. 
Vows were something you would do in those cultures when you could not go to the place of worship, when you could not offer a proper sacrifice. You would make a promise that when you were able, you would do that. You would someday do that. And so this is what they did. They did the best they knew how based on their culture. We don't know that they got saved, so to speak. We don't know if they became monotheistic and trusted the God of the Hebrews for the rest of their life or if they just added him. But at this point in time, they realized God is God and there's no one else that could save him. And he did save them because the miraculous storm and the miraculous calming of the storm when they chucked Jonah into the water. Verse 17, God provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Now, there's a lot of conjecture, and I'll just touch on it quick. Was this like some special fish that God grew just for this? Was it like, you know, there was no fish before, and God like, bloop, you know, let there be a fish, and whoop, it was big enough? No, it was, uh, I mean, God does supernatural stuff, but so often he uses what's already there uh, for his purposes. So the best thinking is that there was already, if not a whale, a great fish, great enough to accommodate a man inside his belly and not swallow him for, you know, three days and three nights or some period of time, and that God had that fish at the right place at the right time, that the fish had been prepared. How long does it take to grow a fish that big? I don't know. Where's Jim Glime? He manages fisheries. We can ask. Whale-sized fish takes how long to grow? I don't know. Decades, right? But that fish was in the right place at the right time to swallow up Jonah and then start swimming his way back to the Mediterranean coast to get Jonah going the direction he needed to go to Nineveh rather than the wrong way that he was going toward Tarshish. The sailors responded with amazing effort and grace. God provided in his grace and his sovereignty. So your question is, how have I experienced God's grace? In your life, how have you experienced God's grace? Have you had a happenstance where it was like the soldiers in this, or soldiers, sailors in this story, where God bailed you out of an amazing jam? Have you had a happenstance like Jonah in this story, where you were the one in disobedience, but God came through to take care of you, to help you obey and do what he wanted you to do? If you haven't had an experience like that, you've certainly experienced God's grace in other ways. Are you breathing right now? God's grace. Do you have thoughts right now? God's grace. Do you have general health right now? God's grace. Do you have a home right now? God's grace. Do you have a family, people that love you? God's grace, God's grace, God's grace, God's grace. You get it, right? Name them. Name God's grace in your life again and again and again. Ask God to humble you by his grace so that next time he calls you to obey, you'll be willing to say, I say God's grace in every area of my life. Therefore, I should obey him because he loves me and he gives me grace. By way of conclusion, we have three points for you to consider. Though Jonah rebels, this is a story of God's grace. Jonah is on the run. Jonah is disobeying God, going as far as he can the opposite direction. Jonah puts a whole ship full of sailors in harm's way. The ship itself thought it was going to break up. Jonah rebelled, but God's grace is all over this. 
Look at the first answer there is that God's grace for the Ninevites by sending Jonah. God knew the Ninevites were brutal. God knew the Ninevites were heinous. God knew the Ninevites needed salvation. God knew the Ninevites needed to repent. And even though they were other than Israel and not his people, God was going to send his prophet to preach to them that they might repent and call and turn on him and receive salvation, we would assume. God knew that. Who do you know that thinks that you think is beyond God's salvation, beyond God's grace? Has God called you to be like a Jonah to them and to share his grace with them? The second answer there is that God's grace for the sailors by his power over the sea. God's grace for the sailors by his power over the sea. Not only did he cause the great storm that had them all freaking out, But then when he calmed the storm, they saw that he was a God like no other God they'd ever met in all their travels and all their polytheism and worship of little G gods from all over the place. That he was the one true God. And by his power, he showed his grace. Have you seen his power in your life? Have you seen his power in the life of others? Can you be used as his instrument to demonstrate his power to others in your life so that they would see His grace. Tell your God stories to people. Tell them whether you think they're believe or not, whether they think you're going to think they you think that they will think that you're a religious nutcase or anything. Tell them of God's grace and provision in your life. God's Holy Spirit will convict them. You don't have to. You just tell the story. You testify of God's grace in your life and you let him be the power that changes hearts and lives. Your third point about God's grace was God's grace for Jonah by sending the fish. God could have sent another prophet. God could have said, all right, Jonah, you're out. Enjoy learning Spanish, bro. Hopefully you like the paella over there and everything like that. God could have sent another prophet to Nineveh. But God pursued Jonah even though Jonah was running away. God had a lesson to teach Jonah about his grace. Jonah, even though you are sinful, disobedient, and rebellious, I love you, and I am going to send a great fish to swallow you to help you get to the place you need to get to, to do my will. How many of us have experienced God's grace like that? We have run away. We have disobeyed. We've sinned directly against the command of God. Yet God in his sovereignty and grace turns our direction and gets us back to where we need to go. God's grace. You might be Jonah on the run today, but I'm going to invite you to stop running and surrender yourself to God's grace. Let's pray. God, our Father, we're humbled by the story of Jonah, I pray. We don't just go, wow, that was cool. But that we would say, okay, God, um, what's that mean for me? As you showed your grace to Jonah, You've showed your grace to us this morning by telling us this story, by giving us ears to hear and eyes to understand. But God, we pray you'd give us hearts to obey, that we would confess our sinfulness, 
we would turn from our disobedience and repent and go the way you've called us to go. God, thank you for your love for us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.